Welcome to the First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. And we have a special program today. We have an all-star. The all-stars of the U.S. Conference of oh. Catholic Bishops are in here this in afternoon. The, studio. the room is filled. I mean, we got a full house. Um, I'm, I'm almost a little intimidated by all the brain power that is all right here together. Um, so we have a, a couple of different things to talk about. We've been very busy lately on bad regulations and bad legislation. So we're going to talk about both of those uh, both of those topics or some issues that we've been dealing with recently. Um, so first, just to say who's here in the room with us, we I'll just start from my left. We've got Lauren McCormick, our Director of Government Relations. Hi, Aaron. Good to be here. We've got Mary McCluskey, our co-host. We have Dan Balzerak, Director of Religious Liberty and my boss. So the one you'll notice, I'll ask the most deferential <laughs> questions to. Softball. softball yeah, I'm only getting and him softball. And he will be right no matter what he says <laughs> yeah, to your right. questions. I mean, I, we don't get raises, so I don't know why I <laughs> need to worry about it or anything. But um, And then we've got um, Robert Vega, who is our policy advisor on family issues in general, right? I, I don't actually know your proper Job? title because it's... I know his job. I, I know what he does. Well, the title's policy advisor, and then there's a subtitle, I believe, uh, ma- on marriage and family life. Marriage and family life. So we have, like I said, a lot going on, a lot we can talk about now. And the first thing that I wanted to start with is regulations. Everybody's favorite topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's important because they impact. Exactly. We had this conversation. I'm, I'm learning. I'm not a policy wonk. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got them here important. in spades. <laughs> okay. So regulations. We had a conversation earlier this past summer. I know Dan has been on the speaking circuit talking about these regulations um, that we were expecting is when we first started talking about this. Now we actually have some regulations in front of us to to think about and to worry about, to fret about. So, Dan, what's happened since this past summer? Back when we last met, we were talking about seven different proposed regulations that we knew the federal government was going to issue in the near future. And we knew that because they had announced their intent in various ways to pursue revisions to existing regulations here and there. But we didn't have the actual text of the proposed regulations yet. Now we do for two of those proposed regulations. One is the Title IX proposed rule. I use rule and regulation pretty much interchangeably. Title IX proposed rule from the U.S. Department of Education and the other, the Section 1557 proposed rule from the Department of Health and Human Services. So Title IX, that is the sex discrimination law that governs uh, education programs and activities. So basically when you're talking about the Title IX rule, you're talking about uh, sex discrimination in schools. And then Section 1557 is the part of the Affordable Care Act, known colloquially as Obamacare, that imposes various non-discrimination requirements in um, in healthcare, that too has a sex discrimination prohibition in it. Actually, sort of picking up on Title IX by by reference, and in both cases, both Title IX and 1557, the sort of main move that the agencies are making is interpreting sex discrimination to mean 
sexual orientation and gender identity. So we've got the actual rules, and anybody can jump in on, on these because, Robert, you've been helping right with the with our comments and all this sort of stuff are they as bad as we thought they were going to be are they better than you know we were, we had these worries about these rules now that we actually have the text you know because there's a lot of kind of it, there's um nuance to these sorts of things right. right i mean they can they can be somewhat complicated yeah and they so. can be just difficult to understand uh the title 9 rule i think is 701 pages long so just reading the thing is but is it's a good it, thing we have a, you guys who are just I have nothing <laughs> else to do 700 pages so quickly right yeah for fun so um, the, um, yeah. Uh, in the regulations are definitely still very bad but they've been crafted in ways to I think avoid some uh, criticisms or avoid some liabilities on the part of the government um, such that you know they're a little harder to pin down in some of the worst ways or some of the ways that are easiest to be targeted. So, for example, in the Title IX regulations, there's some ambiguity with respect to what to do about uh, sex-separate spaces. You know, such as uh, uh, dormitories and restrooms. There, you know, in a lot of respects, the uh, discussion in the regulation itself talks about the need to treat persons in accord with their self-identified gender identity in a whole range of sex-separate situations, uh, because to not do so would be a greater than a uh, so-called de minimis harm uh, to those individuals. And yet, in the same breath, uh, the regulation goes on to suggest areas in uh, statute or regulation where greater than de minimis harms are already allowed regardless and are not going to be touched. And uh, some examples there being facilities and restrooms, even though restrooms are also used as an example, uh, as an example elsewhere in the regu uh, regulations discussion on uh, why you need to treat people in accord with their gender identity, lest it be uh, you know, a harm and uh, unlawful sex discrimination. So. Uh, they make some things hard to pin down. And then in athletics, uh, they actually specifically say they're going to defer on the question until a later time, even though some of the other questions that they're answering seem like they would be an umbrella that would cover that regardless. So it makes things a bit ambiguous. And then um, in the abortion uh, context, both in the uh, Title IX uh, proposed rule and the 1557 proposed rule, there was uh, you know, great concern about abortion provision and coverage uh, mandates being involved, but there's frankly a lot of ambiguity there in, in, in how they uh, deal with the existing abortion neutrality language in the Title IX statute and you know, it, how we're supposed to determine uh, what discrimination on the basis of uh, pregnancy or related conditions of, or termination of pregnancy is even supposed to mean, if it means you know, calling for a mandate for you know, abortion itself or not discriminating against someone who's had an abortion in the past, and I, I think there are you know a few other possible permutations of that, and I, I don't know if others in the room may have more to uh, elaborate on there. I mean, I, I think we we felt a little vindicated in being confused by the Title IX uh, rule when we saw that um, I think it was 18 senators, 18 uh, Democratic senators 
filed their own comment. Um, they they sent in a comment to the Department of Education saying, "Hey, these these rules about how you're supposed to treat sex separate spaces are pretty ambiguous, and we think you need to clarify them." So we're not we're not alone in finding the regulation pretty difficult to to parse. So a couple of things that can come up as y'all were talking about the ambiguity and then you know other comments. It's kind of related to what regulations are. I mean, isn't the point of the regulations to there there's, there can be like there's a little bit of a gap between the legislation that's passed and then how you're actually going to apply the legislation? Is that basically right? Like that's so I would think that like right. the whole like. The, the, the point of regulation is to specify how to implement. It's to be very specific, <laughs> right? So that doesn't. So why ambiguity? And then also, is it weird for lawmakers to make comments on regulations when they they pass laws? Like what? I mean, it, it, that seems like that would be sort of almost cheating. It's like you had the chance, or no? Is that am I misunderstanding yeah. how regulations work? Well, like, I, I, to the to the first point, I, th I think this is a good. Um, I think this is a good opportunity to bring up the fact that where we see the amb some of the ambiguities uh, that we discussed, we know from guidance memoranda and existing policies under the current administration uh, and you know the Department of Education and HHS, you know, they're under. We know what they're going for. We know what their principles are. You know, they are to uh, mandate. Uh, you know, participation in, in sports according to gender identity. You know, they are to, you know, mandate provision of uh, gender transition, uh, you know, surgeries uh, to, to all comers. And we, we've seen, you know, we've seen guidance, you know, guidance memos and policies, you know, be posted and sent out and treated as if other, enti you know, private entities or, or public schools, what have you, are supposed to, are given the impression that they're supposed to follow them. But these things are released without the uh, full public notice and comment period and all of the accountability that that entails. And then these regulations get proposed a year later in some cases to just begin that process. And, you know, the, it, so it kind, it kind of makes it a difficult moving target to say, well, your official policy is not even, you know, is proposed and not even finished being developed yet. But yet your somewhat unofficial policy is already wreaking havoc in some cases. You mentioned um, guidance memos. So that's kind of maybe speaks to a question that's been rattling around in my head is what I've seen the articles discussing, you know, like I think it's there's some uh, American Academy of Pediatrics. I might be getting the, the, the name wrong, but basically saying that like there's currently a debate about when gender transition surgery might be you know whether it's appropriate or not or we're giving cross-sex hormones to children too young and you know at what age they can consent versus not consent so my question is like where in in these when these regulations and rules are announced what's the justification what's the scientific you know what what are their reasonings for like what what are they basing this on do they have to even justify the rules and regs that they are you know i think there are some people who come up with a study to match their objectives and goals right but i mean i, I guess my question is where like how can they justify this what are they what are they basing all of this on if it's if it's not politics yeah so in every regulation of any size. There's a, a section called a regulatory impact analysis where they are supposed to consider that exact kind of thing. 
um, not not the the law or you know what the administration's policy objectives are, but on the ground, you know, how is this going to help and hurt people? And they you know do math, you know, huge spreadsheets on you know counting up all the different doctors who receive federal funding and how much it's going to cost everyone to comply and you know what are the expected benefits to patients and harms to patients and if they don't engage in a rigorous analysis then they the rule is subject that's an area of legal exposure for the rule they have to do a a reasoned sort of analysis of of the actual impact of the regulation on the ground and that's actually where you end up seeing a lot of the the argument being focused in the litiga- the litigation that inevitably follows rules like this is you know, HHS was arbitrary and capricious for failing to consider the studies the XYZ studies from you know Harvard Medical School finding that blah 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 and that will actually be a sort of legally operative thing it, it actually tends to be in the rulemaking process when the agency bureaucrats are, are looking at all of these public comments, figuring out, you know, do we have to change the rule, the proposed rule, um, to account for these comments, those tend to be the kind of comments that get the most traction. You know, the agency will say, oh, geez, we, this is actually a blind spot for us. We didn't realize that the regulation was going to have this effect. We need to do something about that. In this area, like you said, you can find a study that says pretty much anything. Um, so the requirement that they engage in this sort of analysis is not a, you know, a guarantee that they're going to come out to a reasoned decision, but it, the requirement is there, at least. Yeah, they will find and use studies or recommendations from professional associations to claim that you know, if people are uh, given medical interventions to, you know, change their bodies to try to match the, you know, gender identity with which they perceive themselves that, well, you know, they may be, they may be happier or say that, you know, otherwise they're going to be at high risk of, you know, suicidality. The problem is that there's, although a lot of these, um, you know, folks that are, you know, in that situation, you know, with gender dysphoria or the like, do experience a lot of sometimes do experience a lot of mental health uh, distress, that there's not a whole lot of evidence that it is actually ameliorated in the long term by these kind of intervening procedures. And uh, particularly in the case of minors, it you know used to be that a wait-and-see approach would lead to the overwhelming majority of minors who expressed uh, dysphoric feelings, to put it simply, growing out of it. If a minor gets onto puberty blockers now, there's about a 100% chance, uh, as far as we're seeing thus far, that they will go on to a more you know, complete transition process, um, at least with respect to cross-sex hormones. And what we're seeing in Europe is that a lot of the authoritative uh, health ministries and academies there are take, uh, starting, to take a, uh, starting to take a step back again, particularly with regard to minors, and really look at it, because they've been promoting and facilitating all this as well. And now they're seeing the skyrocketing number of youth uh, pursuing 
uh, gender transition procedures without a whole uh, plenty of evidence that they may be you know, experiencing some sort of distress and maybe needing something, but without a whole lot of evidence on the other side to actually say, well, these are the some things that are actually going to help, you know, be helpful. Even if they were, you know, we would have anthropological you know, debates about that as well. But, but uh, for even just the most basic you know, reasons of, of, of effectiveness, they're starting to, you know, they're starting to grapple with the reality of various, you know, uh, studies that, you know, don't indicate a long-term uh, improvement in outcomes. I think a lot of the studies that we see used by the government, used by the media here, are have some flaws. Uh, often they're very short-term. Um, often they fail to follow up with people, uh, to try hard to follow up with people whom they can't find. And so they only uh, follow up with the people that are happy to report back. So there's kind of a self-selection uh, bias perhaps going on there. I have a question about the about this effectiveness piece while you're on this, though. I mean, it seems like mental health issues are very complex, and I'm just wondering if, like, even even if studies showed that in general certain treatment plans were the best, not just for this, but for any other types of of mental health issues. I mean, are there any other are there any other types of mental health issues where there is a mandate that the that medical professionals have to act, treat them a certain way. I, I guess I would think that, like I said, even if you kind of, even if you take it, take out a controversial issue like this one, I would still think that, like, generally speaking, you want the medical professionals to be able to. You're still talking about particular about individuals, you know, and you would want them to be able to have the space to do what they think is right. It seems like a, a mandate on something like this can be somewhat dangerous, but. I don't know. Maybe like, are there is there anything comparable to this, or you might not? I can't can't really think of one off the top of my head. What I what I think your question points at, though, is the difficulties that arise in sort of merging the ideas of mental health or psychological condition and a status that is protected under the law. So you have, you know, you're protected against gender identity discrimination. Um, and, you know, you don't generally think of non-discrimination laws as, you know, attaching to people with mental conditions, mental you know, states of mind or whatever. Uh, but that's kind of what's happening here. And I, I think some of the arguments being made for the, the sort of creation of and, and uh, affirmance of rights of the sort that 1557 would would protect, kind of the arguments kind of want to have it both ways because on the one hand the idea is this is a status worthy of protection under the law, equal to you know, race, national origin, religion, but on at the same time it is also this treatable underlying mental condition, potentially even a disability. Legally speaking, there's a, a court that just just found that the the Americans with Disabilities Act covers gender identity some gender identity conditions as a disability. So it's actually disability discrimination to not sort of treat a gender you know gender dysphoric person consistent with their gender identity. So but so which is it? Right? It, it, it's a it's a poorly defined concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a an irony there in the proponents of 
gender theory will say that you know the state of being you know transgender in their view uh, is normal and not you know not abnormal really and not and certainly not a disorder but then at the same time if someone uh, who identifies as transgender wants a medical procedure well then it needs to be covered as a medical necessity as if something needs to be corrected right so that's what I was which getting at is with it? the thing yeah uh, but, and i think and i think uh, dan also raises a really important point to emphasize which is the difference between persons and procedures if we you know were confronted with a regulation that said well you can't discriminate against people that identify as transgender meaning uh, you can't, you know, kick them out of the hospital when they, you know, come in for a heart attack. They're like, okay, yeah, of course, we would never kick them out of the hospital when they come in for a heart attack. That's a real, uh, that's a real case of non-discrimination uh, on the basis of, you know, gender identity or transgender status, perhaps. But to say you have to perform a procedure like, you know, a, a mastectomy or what have you for a specific indication a specific condition that's not non-discrimination about people that's you know mandating the procedure and it really should be considered a completely different question but uh it's something that uh, unfortunately we see policymakers uh tending to conflate right i mean we are against discrimination we agree uh, not only agree with i mean we in a lot of ways christianity is sort of what gave rise to the idea that all people have innate dignity um, that sort of emerges from our teaching about all persons being created in the image of God. So certainly we, um, we affirm the goal of protecting people from unjust discrimination. It's just that objecting to some particular procedure in a certain set of circumstances is not the same thing as discrimination. Lauren, I wanted to ask you because we've been so focused on the, um, you know, the rulemaking and regulation aspect of this because that's what we're dealing with the regulations. You're mostly dealing with issues on the Hill. Um, so before we move on to the Respect for Marriage Act, still just sticking with this, you know, like let's say these. For one thing, we, we're talking about rules that already exist and they're changing rules, right? So that's for for different reasons, and you know that could we can discuss that, but like. Let's say that in the end, like, we file our comments, and, and but they still go for, like, some, uh, we still have a result we don't like. What do, what do you do then? Like, I mean, are there legislative solutions? Do you have, you know, how does it work then when, because it it's kind of like, how does it work then whenever you have, you've had maybe longstanding legislation, and then rules are sort of bouncing around? Do you, can you go back and, like, change the laws to clarify? Um, t tell us how that, how that works, you know. Well, it's a good question, and one of the things that we haven't nailed down in this conversation so far that I think is really important is the advocacy that needs to continue to happen to prevent that result. And I believe you've talked in prior podcasts about our Do No Harm website, and so our listeners may be familiar with that, where you can go to this Do No Harm website and take action to send your comment to the agencies to express 
to agree with what USCCB is saying that these are problematic, they are harmful to religious liberty and to the common good and to the healing ministry that needs to go on in Catholic hospitals and everything else that's affected by the Title IX and the Section 1557 rules, that action to communicate our concerns with the agency needs to happen now, um, particularly before October 3rd, which is the deadline for public comments on the non-discrimination rule, the Section 1557 rule that we're talking about. So we hope that there will be thousands and thousands of, of Catholics that, that make their voice known with the agency um, to prevent the outcome of the rule not being meaningfully changed before it's finalized. If we are not successful in changing the course of the regulation, if it's finalized the way that it's been proposed right now, Congress could uh, do something called a Congressional Review Act resolution to un try to undo the rule, but that's not a realistic prospect for Congress because Democrats control the House and the Senate right now, and they are generally supportive of the direction that the Biden administration is going. So that path wouldn't be successful. We could pursue litigation for the individual ministries who are being harmed or, or individuals that are being harmed by the regulations. So those are some things that could happen afterwards. The most important part is to make sure that we get the comments into the agency to express our concern with where this is going. And what is that URL again? It is www.usccb.org forward slash do hyphen no hyphen harm. Well, a couple of questions related to that, to the advocacy piece. I can see two reasons that somebody, the average person, might be skeptical of, of even engaging in advocacy. One is they may wonder, does this even affect me at all? Like, why do I even care? Like, yeah, in the abstract, it sounds bad, but my life is going to be the same, regard, you know, so it doesn't really matter to me. The other, and I think the three of you are, are well positioned to answer this, since these are people who have worked in the Senate, have worked in government agencies, um, so you all, you know, and you've been on the other side of this, do, does advocacy actually make any difference at all? Like, it's easy to be like, nobody, why would I, nobody's going to pay any attention to do the comments or letters or whatever the various kind of ways that people can make, like, contribute something. Do they even do anything? So any of you, you get, this is, Again, all-star all-star cast up here has actually worked in the government. You know, you all know. Does it make a difference? It, be it, honest. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, to be honest, it, it depends on the circumstance. But I think in these circumstances, it can. Um, you know, with uh, respect to the uh, comments into the administration, you know, sometimes an administration, you know, knows what they're going to do in advance. But as Dan was describing, they're legally required to engage with all of the comments that they receive. And if they do so insufficiently, that will count against them if and when they end up in litigation afterward. So in the long run, uh, those comments uh, would definitely be helpful. And sometimes it does impact the uh, course of uh, the rulemaking in the administration as well. We, we saw a, um, a, uh, an insurance mandate related to gender identity uh, at the uh, 
uh, beginning of the year that originally was supposed to uh, come out, and then in response to some practicalities that the administration realized that they would face uh, during the comment uh, period, they pulled back on that element. Now, they deferred to future proposed rulemaking, like the one we're discussing here with 1557, uh, but they did, uh, they did uh, pump the brakes um, appropriately, in, in my view. And then when it comes to legislation, you know, sometimes a, a member of Congress will know where they're going to come out, but there are times where there's a close, controversial issue, and um, a critical number of members of Congress are uh, appear to be on the fence or undecided on something, and uh, it you know will matter to them what their their voters are saying. And I believe the Respect for Marriage Act is an example of that, where we are seeing uh, some members of the Senate, uh, in particular, where the bill is um, you know currently being worked on at this time. You know where where there are senators who are indicating that they're you know undecided, and as the bill is being um, hammered out and potentially amended, uh, do you know need to hear hear from the folks? So I spent a good half year of my life in a cubicle, <laughs> reading comments of the sort that we're talking about now um, in the second ugliest building in America, uh, Boston City Hall being the. I was going to guess that. Yeah, <laughs> Boston, <laughs> Boston City Hall, easily the ugliest building in America. That's an opinion that I had before Justice Breyer said so. Second ugliest is HHS. So when when you're reading these comments as a an agency staffer, um, there's sort of two things they're good for. One is does the comment raise a unique substantive issue that the agency you know, needs to agree with this position because it's bad, and so we're going to do this good thing instead, or or and you you just count basically you know, this this comment disagrees with the rule and this comment agrees and the agency never really publishes a final tally of how many for and against but they they know and on an issue that's a political priority normally the for and against doesn't really matter this time i think it might because six months ago a year ago i think people were a bit more afraid than they are now to disagree with this sort of gender ideology orthodoxy. And people are starting to feel a little more free to, to dissent. And if the agency sees, oh, wow, it actually does turn out a lot of Americans disagree with us on this basic, the premise underlying this, this rule, I, I think that might give them a little bit a, a bit of a cause for concern. And the polling we've done on this has has affirmed that in fact, you know, I think the majority of Americans do disagree with the idea that it is always discrimination if you don't perform a gender transition procedure. Like Robert was saying, well, we object to the, the procedure, not the person. People people recognize that that is not discriminating against a person. It's a, it's objecting to a procedure. Well, we I think we can move on then to the Respect for Marriage Act, and I think this is something that I have not been as involved in because I've been kind of up to my elbows in the 
in the regulation stuff. But um, but Lauren, this is something you've been working a lot on and been bringing um, to our attention in our recent committee meeting, um, making sure that we also you know are paying a lot of attention to this issue. So Respect for Marriage Act. Uh, this really goes back to the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health this summer, which was such welcome news from the conference um, to ensure that states working through their elected officials can begin to protect life in the womb. Um, so we were so grateful for that decision. Unfortunately, those that did not support the court's decision in Dobbs are claiming that other rights that are currently protected under the Constitution, same-sex marriage being one of them per the Obergefell decision, they're claiming that recognition of same-sex marriage is meaningfully at risk in wake of in the wake of the decision. We disagree with that. The, the majority, in its opinion, was clear that the decision had no impact on same-sex marriage or contraception or these other things where prior court decisions have found um, a right to protect. Um, and so that's what Congress is doing. Democrats in Congress are putting forward a piece of legislation that would make permanent and protect that recognition of same-sex marriage that was provided under the Obergefell decision. We, of course, as the church, hold and will always uphold the authentic conjugal view of marriage between a man and a woman. So we fundamentally have a concern about this legislation um, going forward. But um, even setting that aside, it, it, the bill is, is unnecessary. The, the recognition of same-sex marriage is, is not meaningfully at risk in, in light of the Dobbs decision. So that's that's one of the points that is is being debated among senators about whether it's necessary for the bill to go forward. We at USCCB have opposed the legislation. Archbishop Corleone wrote a letter to um, members in both the House and the Senate expressing our our concerns with the underlying um, promotion of redefinition of marriage, and also outlining our concerns with how the bill will harm religious liberty interests. So that is the kind of a overall where we are. And um, I think it'd be helpful for Dan or Robert to talk in a little bit more detail about the specifics. But one of the things that, that I think is important to point out is that in the wake of the Dobbs decision, what is a priority for for the conference and what we think should be a priority for Congress is to pass legislation to support women in need and families, things like paid leave and expanded child tax credit, other policies that support women and children in response to the Dobbs decision. We think those should be Congress's priorities right now. And instead, they're focusing on, on this other bill that's problematic in a number of ways. And I think Bishop, uh, several Bishop chairmen put out a statement uh, at the beginning of August, I believe, saying just that, right, about Congress's priorities kind of being 
flip-flopped and very misguided here uh, in the wake of Dobbs. That's exactly right. So we're we're going to keep talking with senators to express our concerns with this direction of, of the bill moving forward and explain why the bill is problematic, especially from a religious liberty standpoint. And we expect that the Senate will vote on the Respect for Marriage Act sometime after the elections. So um, maybe, Dan, could you talk a little bit more about why we're concerned about the religious liberty impact of the bill? Sure. So Supreme Court decided Obergefell. When they held the oral arguments uh, about the case, the issue of religious liberty got brought up during oral arguments, and I forget which justice it was, but someone asked, well, we we do have a precedent where a university, Bob Jones University, had its tax exemption revoked because of because they engaged in race discrimination. If we if we legalize, if we recognize same sex marriage, our religious institutions that uphold traditional beliefs about marriage, are, are they going to be similarly imperiled? Are they going to face the same sort of tax consequences that Bob Jones University did for engaging in race discrimination? And the Solicitor General of the United States arguing for the legalization of same-sex marriage said, yes, that's certainly going to be an issue. Uh, so even before Obergefell, it was flagged, this is going to be a big problem for religious, for people of faith and religious organizations. And we've seen that play out. Um, tax exemptions have not been revoked yet. Have they? I haven't heard of a haven't, particular... I uh, haven't seen any uh, example of that, no. Yeah. Um, but in terms of legal exposure to employment lawsuits, disqualification from uh, government grants or contracts, accreditation issues for schools, the creation of same-sex marriage as a legal right has burst this array of religious liberty problems. And normally, you know, if Congress had had passed a bill recognizing same-sex marriage, they would have had the opportunity to sort of find a compromise on issues like this. But because the Supreme Court did it, it just it said. There's a right to same-sex marriage. This is probably going to cause religious liberty problems, but we can't decide those here. That's not what we're here to do. We're a court. So we've been sifting through, fighting through this, this swamp of religious liberty issues created by same-sex marriage. And here, Congress has the opportunity, if they, if they insist on, on weighing this bill, they have the opportunity to do what they couldn't, when the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, which is strike strike the balance between these between these interests, and this bill doesn't do that. All it does is codify Obergefell, um, and our position is: look, the status quo is not good enough right now. You know, we we have been under assault for the past six, seven. Seven years. Seven years um, on these issues, and it is a dereliction of your duty um, as legislators to to fail to fix them here. There are a bunch of wonky ways I can get into about why this 
filled with specifically your problem for religious liberty. Here, here's here's one. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like I should do a dance. Pick an example that helps um, people see how it would impact their lives. So. <laughs> Uh, so in the in the context of debates on this bill, some people who've been sort of poo-pooing our concerns have said, well, what about the Supreme Court's ruling in Fulton, Fulton v. City of Philadelphia? The Supreme Court said there, Catholic Social Services of Philadelphia is free to continue its foster care program um, in in keeping with its views on marriage. Uh, they are not required to certify same-sex couples to to be foster care parents. Doesn't that do the trick for you guys? Doesn't that protect your rights fully? You don't need it in the bill. You can just point to this ruling. And the answer is no for a couple reasons. One, there are a lot of people out there who would construe Fulton, the ruling in Fulton, to be narrow in a number of respects, so it wouldn't apply to every claim that we're concerned about. But also, when the Supreme Court was doing its analysis in Fulton, um, part of that an analysis is weighing what the government's interest is in forcing, in, in making the religious objector uh, violate its beliefs. And the Supreme Court described that that interest was sort of non-discrimination against people in same-sex marriages. And the Supreme Court characterized that interest as weighty. And the Supreme Court's choice of words there is very consequential and intentional because under both the First Amendment and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, blah, 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 um, the interest needs to be compelling if the government is going to be able to force the religious objector to, to violate his or her beliefs, their beliefs. Weighty is lesser than compelling. We think if if Congress passes this law, people bringing those same sorts of claims, you know, you, religious organization, are re required to treat my same-sex marriage as valid. You, religious employer, are required to hire me, even though my, you know, I, I engage in conduct contrary to your religious beliefs. They're, they're going to point to this bill, and they, they'll say, well, look, when the Supreme Court decided Fulton, Congress had not yet created a national policy. They had not passed a bill specifically affirming this right. It was a creature of the courts. Um, but now you have this new, this new statute and passed by both houses of Congress and signed by the president. And we think that changes the analysis. So here now, post passage of this bill, suddenly that interest is compelling and religious believers can be made to violate their beliefs. Is that sufficiently concrete? Yeah, <laughs> you, you talked about adoption in Pennsylvania, absolutely, in foster care. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have a question. Um, it's, it almost seems like a theme of this, of this podcast um, that has sort of popped up is, is ways that the legislative branch ends up deferring to the other branches in some ways. That seems odd. Is that common in writing legislation to just say, well, we're just not going to talk about this thing because it's, the court's already decided. But like, 
I'm not nearly as experienced in, in the government as y'all. Like, the, I would think that legislation is sort of like, not that it can override court decisions, but I would think that like it can. Okay, so like that's supposed to be like the main thing. Like, it just seems weird to me to say like, well, we're not going to talk about this in our writing a law because the courts already made this decision. It's like you can still say that in the law, can't you? Is that common, or why is it, why would that be happening? You two are the full staff. I see that more often happen. I see that more often happening with respect to the executive and administrative agencies like HHS, particularly since I, I think the history books would say that this trend really picked up in the 1940s to uh, delegate a lot of uh, lawmaking power essentially to the agencies, the consequences and wisdom of which can be you know, very much debated from a whole range of perspectives. Uh, but you'll often see legislation that either subtly or even very expressly calls out the secretary or the commissioner or the administrator of HHS, F, you know, FAA, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, whatever, to, you know, promulgate rules and um, issue, issue plans to accomplish a whole range of vague goals that Congress sets out and, the, and then the agencies actually have to do a lot of the, you know, a lot of the details, every even very general details. Um, so that that I would say does happen a lot. I'm less off the top of my head able to think of a uh, example of a kind of self-conscious deferral by Congress to the you know judicial branch on something. Even though there's of course an understanding that the judiciary would engage in interpretation as they go. Yeah, I I think. Where that happens, maybe not in the exact sense that Aaron, Aaron had in mind, but where that often happens is in religious liberty issues where in response to an, to an objection about a bill, like, oh, th this bill doesn't have enough specific religious liberty protections in it, the response is, oh, well, you've got the Constitution. Like, that, you can just make a constitutional claim. And that just strikes me as a lazy and b sort of bad policy. You know, we <laughs> obviously our constitutional guarantees are are precious, but we also think that Congress should identify when it is necessary to be clearer and to go further, and to not make religious people, religious organizations litigate every time that the, these conflicts arise. Can I just ask a follow-up kind of, I'm thinking about something I wanted to ask earlier, but so these regulations, I mean, these apply to all, well, let me just ask a broad question. Who, who do these regulations apply? Medical, like just public schools or also private schools? Are we talking um, medical, you know, are we talking Catholic providers would also be subject to these regulations? Who, who is under, who do these apply to? If they go, if they do, are in fact enforced. So with respect to the, the schools question in Title IX, uh, those regulations apply to uh, recipients of federal funding. Um, so it's kind of a string attached to federal funding streams. However, 
you know, someone might say, oh, well, then, you know, that doesn't affect a whole lot of people or that's, you know, you know maybe reasonable or whatever. But that actually affects a pretty wide universe of uh, schools. You think of like the, you know, uh, national uh, school lunch program uh, that, you know, whether that uh, constitutes pertinent funding, um, you know, something that courts have been, you know, trying to figure out, um, but would impact, you know, basically, you know, all public schools and potentially private, uh, you know, range of private schools, um, really public schools across, you know, across the board are parts of a whole number of other more purely educational programs. Uh, the good news for Catholic schools is that uh, the uh, religious exemption uh, in Title IX for not having to uh, fall under any provisions that would uh, conflict with a tenet of a religious-based school's faith, you know, is, is pretty strong and, and pretty good. But, you know, we know about 90% of Catholic children are in public schools, so we're just as much concerned about them as, as, as the other uh, 10%. And then with respect to health care, yeah, you're looking at uh, that much more likely, uh, you know, looking at uh, a range of uh, religious entities um, you know, Catholic hospitals, Catholic clinics and nursing homes, and Catholic individual health care, you know, workers uh, of all kinds. And there's, uh, I believe there's funding stream elements involved there too, but it's essentially like if you take Medicare or Medicaid, you know, for example, well, that counts. So what are you going to do, not serve the poor and the elderly? Right. <laughs> That's not really a realistic option. Yeah, they're both both Title IX and fifteen fifty seven are exercises of Congress's spending power. So Congress one of the ways that Congress can tell people to do or not do things is to attach conditions to, to money that they spend. Both Title IX and fifteen fifty seven are conditions on money coming out of Congress. In fifteen fifty seven the the range of funding that is included is so broad that it captures the vast majority of healthcare providers, um, and there's no. So, so Robert mentioned Title IX does have a good religious exemption in it, and that's that's comforting. 1557 does not. There is a weird and unexpected part of the proposed rule that says basically, if you are religious. And you think that this that you should be exempt from anything this rule would require you to do, whether you're a, a person or an organization, you can make that view known to us here at HHS, and we'll take it into account before we enforce it against you, enforce the rule against you, which is about as assuring as it sounds. HHS is currently fighting a court ruling that, that found that they violated religious liberty laws back when they tried to do basically this exact same thing in 2016. So the idea that HHS will suddenly come around to this new idea that, oh, in fact, religious liberty laws do protect you here, and we were wrong last time, and we're currently wrong in the suit that we're, that we're fighting in court right now, it's, it's just not, there's good reason to be skeptical of, of the vitality of the exemption in the rule. Basically, short story is it applies, 1557 applies to pretty much everybody if you're working in the healthcare space. Or, and, and 
in that respect then it would could somehow affect you if you interact with the healthcare space. Yeah, I mean, I mean looking for a doctor who yeah. shares your values in some way or mm -hmm. or a healthcare provider. What about paying for your health insurance, right? Mm -hmm. Also, um, we I've, we've been thinking about uh, situations of uh, roommates in nursing homes, for example, where you're you know maybe a vulnerable elderly adult, and if uh, you know your prospective roommate is of the opposite sex but identifies as the same sex as you, you could be you know forced to have to live with them for the rest of your days, which is you know maybe something that a lot of you know, patients and families would, uh, you know, feel pretty uncomfortable with. I also think, as a patient, I want to know that my doctor is exercising her clinical judgment, on, you know, without undue constraint. Um, obviously, if I happen to have, happen to find a, a doctor who is like a psychopath, I'd be glad to know that there were there were some laws out there keeping her from like murdering me, or whatever. But I I, I want. I believe your wife is a doctor, isn't that right? Oh yeah, that's kind of awkward, huh? Uh, um, well, hopefully she won't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I want to know that my doctor is has has the space to make a, a clinical judgment. Mm. This rule, 1557, she says this is a clinical judgment. That, that you can't make. You're, um, I'm, I'm getting a little, treading on a little thin ice here because there are there's some provisions in the rule saying that sort of individualized clinical judgments against performing gender transitions might be okay, but you, it definitely says you can't just decide that a double mastectomy for gender transition purposes is never okay. You have to, you have to concede the possibility that that is a a valid procedure, um, and that's simply not an opinion you're allowed to hold. Um, I, I want my doctors thinking freely, not thinking whatever the government tells my doctor to think. And that's a way that this this regulation, I think, affects patients on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we're about getting close to the end of our time, but I wanted to add, check in with Lauren just to to round out the discussion of the Respect for Marriage Act, it sounded like it's sort of, it sounds like there are a lot of some unknowns about where it's heading. And can you just kind of fill us in there and then say like, in fact, if it's, when there are those kind of unknowns, there may be even more space to, to take action, right? I mean, to, to advocate um, for what we would like to seek. So can you kind of round out that and give us a nice little bookend to the Respect for Marriage Act? discussion. Yes, deliberations on that bill are going to be continuing over the next few weeks, and so we do encourage listeners to take action. We, hopefully you're already signed up through our action alert system so that you've received it, but you, you can go to USCCB's action page, and there is a link where you can take action to contact your senators in opposition to the Respect for Marriage Act. It would be really helpful uh, for listeners to do that and to encourage your friends or family or other people that you know to do that so that senators deliberating over the bill can be sure and hear our concerns about how the bill will impact religious liberty and our concerns about 
protection and upholding the beauty of marriage. And I and I would um, emphasize perhaps as well that in the course of those ongoing negotiations, we gather that there are, you know, possible amendments to the bill that are you know claimed to be um, helpful for uh, a number of the religious liberty and other concerns. But uh, we would just stress that you know from what we have seen and heard thus far that those would be insufficient and so want to you know ensure that should any you know listeners advocating on this uh, come across you know assurances that changes have been made uh, to the bill to um, ameliorate uh, the problems with it that that might not uh, indeed uh, be the case at least from our perspective well y'all this has been a good conversation I think really though thank you so much um, for all for all of you coming, um, I almost feel a little guilty hogging all of the USCCB's brain power for this hour. I thought you were going to say all the microphones. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all of you everything. gathered here in, in one in one place. It's been really great, very informative, and also, I mean, there is knowing that there is a there are ways to take action to make a difference, to be a good citizen. Um, for encouraging people to get involved and do something and say something. Don't just kind of stand back and read about all these things and worry, but you can actually be involved. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you. I'm Aaron Weldon. And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast.